you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Well, hey there. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. This one is episode 96 and I'm Oliver Banks, your host and your guide to delivering successful retail transformation programs. The words transformation and innovation often are seen as hand in hand. And when we're thinking about the innovation pipeline and process in a retail business, it's often that the store of the future is a key part of that overall innovation strategy. Usually, the store of the future blends together the latest and greatest thinking within the organization, along with maybe some big bets, some fancy new technology perhaps, maybe a new store design, some process improvements, and a whole lot more other changes. Yes, the store of the future becomes a beacon or a totem for the future of the brand and where it is going. And loads of stuff can get crammed in, which makes it confusing, but it still is the symbol for innovation in the company. But the coronavirus pandemic has led to more innovation being landed and deployed than perhaps a store of the future could hope to achieve. Now, of course, that's different in all companies, but I'm sure you've heard the stories of acceleration and More change being landed in a number of weeks or months than there has been in a number of years. So today, let's explore this. Let's explore what the future is for the store of the future. Is it still relevant? Is it still worth having a store of the future in your innovation strategy? And if so, what part does it play going forward? So to discuss this and dive in much deeper, I'm welcoming a real expert to the show with bucket loads of experience with innovation programs and with the store of the future in retail businesses. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Chris Walton. Now, if you don't know Chris, then he is a leading expert and influencer in omnichannel retailing, and he brings 20 years of experience across nearly every functional area or discipline in the industry. At present, he is the CEO and founder of OmniTalk, one of the fastest growing blogs and podcasts in retail. And he's also CEO and founder of Third House, a retail technology lab in Minneapolis in the US, where he's continually talking about innovation and the store of the future. He is a speaker. He's a senior contributor at Forbes and sits on the advisory board for Delivery Solutions and Xenia Retail. Previously, Chris was at Target, where he was vice president of the Store of the Future project. And he also held a number of other roles, including being a district manager and also vice president of merchandising for home furnishings at Target.com. And prior to Target, he also worked at Gap as well. So he's got a good broad experience, including some really very specific experience around the store of the future. So I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with Chris Walton. Like I mentioned, this one is episode 96. So if you want to check out the show notes from today, then do head over to obandco.uk slash 96. 
where you can find out more about what we are discussing today, along with if you want to get in touch with Chris, then all his contact details are over there too. So obandco.uk slash 96. So let's jump into my conversation with Chris Walton looking at the future of the store of the future. Here we go. Chris Walton, welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing great, Ollie. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really great to have you here and a a fellow podcaster as well. So I'm really excited about our conversation today, all about the store of the future, which, as I was just explaining, you have this really rich background in. So I'm really keen to jump on into it. But I suppose just before we do jump on into it too deep, let's all get on the same page, Chris. What do we mean by store of the future? Oh, man, store of the future. Yeah, it's a complicated term. I always joke whenever I give a presentation, I usually say that is a term fraught with peril. Uh, Holly. I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a term that's really well, I think, understood. And I, it, quite frankly, it's, I, it's, I would actually say it's overused a lot. Mm. Uh, and you'll see a lot of different reporting in the media that I think spins it in, in the right direction, but also very often in the wrong direction too. So I think store of the future as a phrase to sum it up quickly, I think it's, it's really dependent mostly on how you want to think about it and at what stage you are at as a company. By that, I mean, really, at the end of the day, if you watch how people talk about it, it usually can refer to one of three things. Mm. And I think thinking about all three of those things uh, is important because they're all distinctly different. And if you're not careful, they can all be captured in that halo. So the first one is what I call incremental innovation. Mm. And that's what you and I or you know, anyone that follows the industry closely sees every day. Like, right? There's a bunch of earnings releases coming out right now. You know, it could be anything. It's it could be a new private label launch. It could be a curbside pickup initiative. It's things that seem futuristic in the sense that they're different than what came you know before in the past. Yep. But at the end of the day, they're just garden variety incremental tactics to improve the business. Yeah, a bit of a test bed for trying some additional ideas out. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. They're just things that are happening almost by the by way of the natural course of progress of doing retail, right? Yeah. They're not fundamentally changing the economics of how retail does what it does. Mm. So I don't classify any of that stuff as true innovation or true store of the future work. Mm. And I'm usually pretty hard in my writing on that too, because I think a lot of times what you'll see is, you know, journalists will read the sound bites or, you know, whomever will kind of take an idea and run with it and lay claim to that retailer being really futuristic in what it's doing. But in reality, it's only kind of playing to the zeitgeist of the moment, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. The second track, though, is really what I call true store of the future work. And so that's where you have really different business models stood up on different economics. Mm. And not surprisingly, the examples of those are few and far between, and they should be because it's really hard to do, right? Like if we could do that, we'd be seeing it all the time. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it is hard to come up with that, right? So, like, what are good examples of that? I think that's the best way to talk about it. Like, mm. so things I look to for inspiration from that would be. Uh, as an example, I think Warby Parker store, I think was a great first example. Mm. Thinking about omni-channel retail in a different way, using your stores and your online business together in a very synergistic way. Mm. Restoration hardware stores, if you're familiar with that business, they're mega experience showrooms. That's a different way of doing business for them. And it was a huge departure in, in terms of how they did business before. To say that is incremental in any way, shape, or form is just not true. Totally ripping up the rule book and let's reimagine what this could look like. 
Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah, there's showrooms, no inventory on site, incredibly experiential, beautiful, a lot of make into the building. Mm. And then my favorite example right now, quite frankly, is Amazon Go. Yeah, I was going to say, does that count in there? Yeah. I think it does now. And uh, it's, it's a good segue too, because I think it's, it's important when you talk about the third track. But yeah, 100%. I mean, they've got now, I think, roughly 30 of them. Mm-hmm. They've expanded in size from roughly 3,000 square feet to 10,000 square feet. And again, like, right? You know, you don't even need, really need a staff. Mm. Uh, your inventory tracking is at a whole different level. Your operational expense. So that's a different business model. And you can tell just based on how the industry is reacting that people are already starting to pay pretty close attention to that. Yep. So that's what I mean when I say true store of the future work. Mm. The third track is what I call concept work. And that's what I think is really the kind of inspiration for a lot of my writing, which is it's akin to what you'd find in the auto industry, like think the concept car, where the idea there is you're doing things live in front of consumers. Some of what you might do might work, some of what you do might fail, some of what you do might be crazy. But it isn't whether the idea succeeds or fails that matters. It's that you're funneling the lessons from the successes and failures back into tracks one and tracks two over time. Yep. That's what's most important. So you're almost being able to break down different bits into their sort of constituent parts and move move them around almost. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you're doing that for incremental innovation, but sometimes you're doing that for really true groundbreaking innovation of almost keeping a North Star idea on like what that true store of the future, future look is or that true how do I disrupt myself work might be. And the crazy thing for me is that examples of that are actually really hard to find. Like it is hard for me to go back over the last few years and find more than you know 10 to 20 examples of that, when in reality, there's, there's nothing that should stop any retailer from doing it because you can do it on a fairly low budget if you want to as well. Mm. Like, So what are good examples of it? Well, Nordstrom Local, I think, is a great example of it yep. uh, in the department store industry. I think Sam's Club Now down in Texas, which is the scan-and-go mobile operating warehouse club, yep. I think is a fantastic example. That's probably my favorite example. You know, and had you asked me, you know, two years ago, I would have said Amazon Go, right? I mean, it was dark to the public. Uh, and it wasn't until they opened it up, further worked out the kinks, took on this true kind of ethos of being a concept idea that it became the scalable idea that we were just talking about. Yes. So that's what I think is really important. And any retailer worth its salt should have some degree of money, I think, placed across all three of those tracks at any given time. Mm. And really, it just depends on how much capital they have and how strong their business models are uh, that should determine how much they should put into each of them. Mm. But the point I always bring up to retailers is Amazon spends $23 billion a year in concept work in R&D. The number is staggering. Crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, right? That's insane. I mean, no retailer cracks the top 10 list in R&D concept work with under this lens of store of the future. And so, you know, when you start asking, you know, What's it take for us to be innovative? I think that's a really good place to start. And the other part too is the people that are good at the incremental work traditionally are not the people that are good at the innovation work. And so you also have to think about that as you're designing Mm. and thinking about what does store of the future mean for you as a retailer? Absolutely. And I guess also it probably goes without saying, but just to paint it exactly very clearly, being clear on what the purpose is of your store of the future. So you're not doing a little bit of new business model and a little bit of incremental stuff and a little bit of concept stuff because it would just get very confusing for, frankly, everyone involved, everyone from the team behind it. 
the team working on the floor, customers, obviously. Exactly right. And I think that's why that's why I love how Amazon approaches what they do. That's why I mm. love Sam's Club now. That's why I use the Nordstrom Local example. I think that's what you're alluding to is actually why a lot of innovation work ends up dying because people aren't really sure where it fits in. Mm. And one of the important things to do is to think about that concept tract as something separate, as something that can stand alone as its own idea. I said disrupt yourself. Yeah, something that can disrupt yourself. And I think the companies do that do it well tend to shed themselves of all the debt that you carry with you, uh, that they're thinking of it more greenfield or fresh from the ground up where you're not taking the debt of the brand, you're not taking the debt of the existing store architecture and operational processes. And instead, you're trying to think of it as something wholly new. And that's important. I, the biggest advantage Amazon has right now in terms of going into physical locations is that none of us have a preconceived notion of how that experience should be shopped. Yes. That is really important to think about. Uh, you go and change a Walmart or a Target, you have generations of people across all different walks of life that could be really frustrated with how that experience goes. In addition to all the cultural you know, norms and whatnot that operate that building, that's really hard to pivot. That's so true. <laughs> right? And so Sam's Club now is brilliant in the sense they, they said, hey, let's just do this completely fresh and let's just see what we can learn from it. And, and that's basically the approach Amazon takes every day. You know, otherwise, the innovation gets really hard to do. And so I always advise, like, if you're really going to do this, you know, do it under a different brand. Mm. Do it with a different organizational structure. Really start, do it like a startup in terms of how you would think about, you know, making this work from the ground up. And only bring in the elements of scale that can help you. Yeah. You know, like if you think about like, you know, if I'm Walmart, like I could stand up an operation that's completely new and I have the benefits of all the procurement on the other side of it. But don't worry mm. about that stuff until you absolutely know you have an idea. Yes. Yeah. I, th I think that's a really important point because actually, if you go at it like a startup and you have this sort of, let's call it a new brand, rather than trying to tinker with the, the main legacy or heritage brand. A, you free up the shackles of yourself in as much as you don't have the restraining ideas, but also from a compliance perspective, you don't have to worry about people buying into it so much until you've proven the idea. We've seen time and time again, a number of people will always pile into a, an early idea and pound it down because it doesn't work like this and it's not as good as that and blah, blah, blah. And the idea is dead before we know it, right? But if you have that opportunity to feed the idea learn about it, let it grow a little, let it find its own power and prove people right or wrong, mm -hmm. then you can run with it after that. That's exactly right. And that's, why, and that's why I made the point too of the people that are good at track one are very different than the people that are good at track three. And oftentimes mm. where the conflict comes is the people that are good at track one, like it or not, don't necessarily want to see track three succeed because if you think about it, if you're doing business right, you are figuring out how to disrupt yourself. You're figuring out how to create new business models, which by definition means you're obsoleting the old business model. And that's where people that don't get the punchline to that joke can be a problem as you try to get those things off the ground because it can become territorial. It can become political as you're thinking about that. Yeah. So the other important part of that is you have to structure these things in such a way that the work you're doing is kept very close to the vest in terms of, you know, being basically signed off through hopefully the CEO at best and maybe a mm. few other people, but kept very tight and kept fertile so that those people that are doing that concept work can go out and do the work that they're supposed to do and not be held down by the vagaries of 
you know, people that might be concerned about, well, does this mean I have a job in a few years? Or we've never mm. done it that way before. What, or we've tried that in the past. <laughs> How would this ever work again? Right? Yeah. But that's that stuff fundamentally matters. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I love these three different sort of categories of the store of the future. We've got the first category, just as a, a quick refresher, there's that incremental innovation elements, which I guess is happening in terms of what the future means. It could be a few months or a year, a couple of years, potentially, until it's fully ready for rollout. The second category was about having a new business model, which, again, in terms of future, could be a year, probably at least a year, I'd guess, or longer. And then the third one is that concept category, which who knows on the timeline? It could be a very long period of time, or actually there could be elements that you you spike out and they accelerate out into that sort of incremental stage as well. Exactly right. But let's just take on the gorilla in the room, Chris. Okay. Over the past few months with the coronavirus, we've seen huge, huge amounts of innovation and new ideas coming through. You know, the acceleration word is happening and we're reading about it, hearing about it time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. We've seen more innovation in, you know, five weeks than we have in five years and all those other things. Do we still need a store of the future in this current climate of acceleration and sort of rapid innovation? Does it still have a place anymore? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that framework we just talked about 100% does. And I think when you look at the retailers that I would point to as being successful, I think fundamentally, whether they talk about it that way or not, they're they're taking that type of approach. Mm. The one thing I've espoused since the start of this pandemic has been the right approach is to kind of take that idea, that philosophy and say, you know what, let me look a year out or a year and a half out and say to myself, holy cow, if the business model never returns the way we used to know it, what would we do? And let's work back. Or another way to say that is, what if our stores are not open for another year and a year and a half? And let's work back. And if they happen to be, that's great. That's a bonus. But at least we're prepared for the future. Mm. And I think the smart retailers are doing that. Whereas you look at, I'll use the counter, you look at (laughs) industries that are struggling with that, malls, specialty-based apparel, Many times it feels like they're actually focused on how do we just get open and what are the procedures we need to get open? And yes, again, if you go back to that incremental definition, yes, you're being different. You're doing things that are different in the past, but you might not be fundamentally solving anything and you might not be fundamentally solving anything for the long term in terms of how you stay relevant. Mm. And I don't think any of us would say based on any of the innovations and the advances in curbside pickup, concierge shopping that we're seeing across those industries, we'd say any of them are better positioned now for the future. And that's why the Amazon, Simon Mall properties, conversations are so interesting inherently, and we don't even know in what angles those will go. Mm. But on the flip side, the retailers that are doing well are taking that approach. I mean, my favorite example, Walmart has done a great, lot of great stuff, but my favorite example is actually Best Buy, because I think you can see that methodology in place. Mm. They've taken a very almost scientific method approach to how they've thought about the pandemic. So what happened when it first hit? They shut down all their stores. They said, we're only going to go online. So they started with the online play. Yep. Then they went to a, a curbside pickup. Then they went to appointment scheduling. Then they started opening. And little by little by little, you're learning what all that you can do and how well you can react in the worst case scenario. Mm. And the fascinating thing for me with Best Buy was even under their worst case scenario, they were still doing 70% of their sales volume. Wow. 
That's crazy. That's not bad. You'd take that, if you said you have to just close all your stores for months on end, you'd take that, wouldn't you? <laughs> you would, right? And so like, if you can understand like what's the worst case and then sci- through the scientific method, develop your way on up, you can probably start to find some different economies of scale for the long term in terms of what you truly need in your operation and what you don't. Mm. And then also through those stage gates, be able to put new ideas into practice much more easily because you know what the puts and takes are as you go from level A to level B to level C, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's quite interesting. And actually over here in the UK, we saw something quite similar actually with a very similar company, uh, Dixon's Carphone, as they, mm. they started expanding slowly and slowly, you know, adding the click and collect and adding new ideas. It was interesting to see and you could actually, I found it really quite useful to be able to see what consumers were making of the new ideas. How are they reacting to just a click and collect offering and and when stores reopened how was you know the queuing experience versus actually do customers prefer still to do click and collect because they want that that quick in and out or safe in and out you know depending on who who a particular customer is yeah it's really interesting yeah and that's i I think that's the what you said there is awesome i mean i think that's the fundamental point here and i've said this a lot which is like this period of time is the greatest experimentation hall pass in the history of retail yeah. So you're able to run all these digital experiments that would have taken you years to run before so you can figure out the answers to those questions. Mm. I think that's the most important part of this mindset that we have to adopt right now because this it allows you the time to do that, not to find the answer, but to find actually what the right answer is probably three to five years down the road based on the different proclivities people are already showing to the, all the different options for how people want to shop. And part of that mm. also too is like, what role does the physical store actually mean in people's lives where there were a lot of questions about that? And now you're starting to figure out what some of those answers could be. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And some of those big questions have existed in retail for a number of years. And I think, you know, like you say, they're boiling up to the surface right now. How should you use a store of the future to be able to test let's say, what is the role of your store? How could you lay that out as a different program? Yeah, I think, you know, taking that framework, I think the important thing to do is, you know, as a brand, I think this, and this question is different, I think for every brand. And that's, that's why Mm. I use the examples that I do to represent, you know, all the different work that's been going on. Because if you look at that work, it's really different by brand, whether you're talking restoration hardware or Sam's Club now, whatever it is. I think the important thing is to think back, step back 30,000 foot view and say, at the end of the day, what is my brand promise? Why do I exist? And then think about that in terms of what does that mean digitally and physically? Mm. I talk about this a lot, almost still I'm blue in the face, but at the end of the day... (laughs) (laughs) Everyone will just have to imagine you with a blue face. (laughs) I I really almost do probably right now if we were on video. But I say it all the time, like stores, whether digital or physical exist for... And this, I think this is fundamentally important as you think about the future of retail and who will succeed and who won't. Stores fundamentally exist for five reasons. They've been a place of inspiration. They've been a place of convenience. They've been a means of immediate gratification. I think that's especially prevalent in grocery. Mm. And then the last two things, they've been a place of what I call taction, which is the ability to touch and feel products, to do all the sensory of aspects of retail, but not for the sensory purposes alone, but really to give you confidence in what you're buying. If you think about it, there's this whole confidence element to how we shop and where we shop that is really important. And then the last point, which I don't think anyone can discount, and it's what we're all yearning for right now, is there's a social joy to just going out and being in the world and doing something. Mm. And for a lot of people, the act of shopping, 
the endorphin rush that you get from that is important. And so as you think about the three types of story of the future work, it's important to say to yourself, okay, what is our brand overall? Where do we fall in that spectrum relative to the competition? And then as I start to think about my digital and physical strategies, which ones of those matter? And the big question in there is, why do my stores exist? What are they intending to do? And when you start looking at the landscape and you start going through some of the retailers and you say, where do they actually exist on that spectrum? It's pretty clearly evident who's going to be around for the long haul, in my opinion, versus who's not. Mm. Because they don't have a dimension that differentiates themselves on any of those psychological aspects. I love it. I think those those five categories are great. And actually, you could absolutely, I could see how you could you know, look at here's where we are today. Here's where we sit. This could be a reincarnation of the brand where actually we want to appeal to that tactile nature or perhaps the community element and how that could then sit into perhaps a new business model, let's say. Mm-hmm. It can almost write itself. What are the different challenges that you'd often come up against as you're reimagining what that could be, Chris? I think most of the challenges are like what we've already talked about. I mean, I think it's it's so funny that the, the ideas are out there. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, trying to experiment with that. I mean, just even in the last few months, the number of companies that are now trying to experiment with, let's say, how do you discover products in the digital world mm. relative to what we've always done in the physical world? You know, digital's always been a, a search to find kind of mentality. Yep. And now we've got this whole kind of new arena growing up where it's how do I search for the point of discovery, like say you're, you have a new job interview, like, you know, before you'd go to the mall and you'd look at all the options mm-hmm. in the online space, that's like a really hard thing to do. And so there's a whole aspect of how that's going to happen online. That's really interesting. And so my point there is just, there's so much activity and so much startup activity going in that direction already. I mean, you had Amazon, Google, Shopify, all do their live stream content in the last two weeks, which is all about that same idea. How do you discover product in a different way? that has nothing to do with the physical world. Yep. So the biggest roadblock is really, again, just allowing the thought space to take shape. And the important thing for retailers, in my mind, along that spectrum is set aside money consistently for R&D. It doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't take a lot to get a startup off the ground. And many of these don't start with a lot of money. In fact, the ones that are probably more problematic start with too much money. Mm. It doesn't take a lot of money. And a lot of times it's, 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 the, it's almost like continuing ed for if you're a lawyer or a dentist or whatever, to keep your business moving forward in the right direction. The ideas are out there and God knows the younger people in your corporations are probably pretty apt to have some ideas of what that could be. And the point is, how do you shepherd them along the way? Mm. Or how do you look to the outside and partner with those companies that are doing things that you think are really interesting in this space that could help your brand along the dimensions that you've chosen to differentiate yourself on? Mm, that sort of fresh pair of eyes of almost adding in that extra creative set of people that can feel their way around the boundaries and, you know, hopefully find the the gold dust that will ultimately represent itself in the store of the future, whatever that looks like for for your particular brand. Mm -hmm. I love it. Just as a thought, Chris, is there such a thing as a digital store of the future? I probably should have said that in the beginning too. I don't think there's really a digital or a physical store of the future. I think it's actually more, uh, and I like, I actually like the term omnichannel. <laughs> I'm a fan of omnichannel too. <laughs> yeah, good, good. yeah, it's funny how it's making a resurgence. Yeah, it's cool again. <laughs> but I, th- I think it's more, what is your omnichannel brand expression of the future? Mm. You know, if I'm talking to somebody, that's to me somebody that I think understands better what we're talking about. But like I said, it can be different for different brands and that could 
lean heavily on stores. It could lean heavily on uh, digital, but it's really a coordinated expression of the brand across whatever touch points you choose to undertake. Mm. The better way to think is almost like a toolbox. Like you have all these tools within the toolbox of that brand. And the biggest thing is which ones are you going to choose to use or not? Nordstrom's, I always take a lot of inspiration from on that aspect of things. Like I heard Eric Nordstrom talk about this one time where he said, you know, the right approach in omnichannel thinking is thinking by market. And I think mm-hmm. he's exactly right. You don't think by channel. You take, the take, you take the best of both worlds and you start thinking about markets at an individual, almost customer level, you know, in a certain region. Mm-hmm. And you start to say, here's my toolbox and here are all the tools I have. It could be a department store, it could be an online portal, it could be a Nordstrom local, it could be whatever, mm-hmm. return hubs. How am I moving the needle specifically by customer each and every period of time. Mm. I think that's how you evaluate success. And I actually look for that in the earnings reports too. Who's taking a market-based approach versus who's talking about it more by channel. And if you think about it, that's how great digital retailers work. They'll say like, you know, this was our customer file this year over last year. This is how many people came back. Physical retailers never talk like that. Legacy retailers never talk like that. Mm. Well, that's being truly customer-focused, right? And I know we have a lot of retailers that, you know, talk the talk but don't necessarily walk the walk when it comes to customer focused or customer centricity and i think actually that's exactly it you're not talking about oh we have this website and we have a store what is the seamless integration between them yeah right <laughs> but actually it's, here's here's a person they need a particular problem solved or whatever that is what's the best way of doing that using like you say the the tools in the ecosystem or in the toolbox i love that idea yeah, and then the math works out differently too. So you don't get into these like territorial fights over like, you know, well, digital hurts my business, you know, it's more yeah. expensive to ship or blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you know, hey, you're in Phoenix, Arizona. This is just the cost of running the business. We've levered up or levered down these specific tools within the toolbox. How well did we do? And let's talk about it that way. And so I think as you're thinking about store of the future design too, back to the framework, mm. you have to kind of take that mindset in terms of how you're going to explore things. I mean, the last thing I'll say on my soapbox, my favorite thing is like, you'll see, say there's a cool new startup. Like I've, I've got a buddy who does a, a startup. He does e-commerce front end mm. and back end logistics for grocery. And one of the hardest things for him is you'll get, he'll get, well, let's do one pilot. And then you stop and you say, well, like that doesn't make any sense. Like if you're going to redo your e-commerce front end, you can't do a one store pilot. Uh, that doesn't serve the market. That's a very disjointed experience. So like you also have to think about how you tactically are doing your experimentation within that mindset as well so that the customer can understand what it is that you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It's a nice way to begin to to wrap it up. So I think, Chris, you know, thinking about store of the future, we've spoken about lots of different angles and I think there's been some great uh, actionable advice for people to be able to take it and say, actually, how are we going to set up store of the future in our company? Is it about incremental? Is it about new business models or concepts? And, you know, what's, what's the purpose of the store and how does that all work? If you were to give people one piece of advice when it comes to the store of the future, what would be the most important piece of advice you could give? I think it's, I think it's a fun, I think number one, it starts with a fundamental alignment uh, with the leadership to say, what are the ideas that we think could disrupt ourselves? Mm. And then number two would be, all right, we are going to set aside money each and every year, some amount with some floor 
to action how you might go about doing that mm. so that you do it before your competition does it. At the end of the day, that amount of money is, like I said, it's for continuing yet. It's almost in a lot of ways saying, how much are you comfortable to lose? But do it in a way that makes sense. But I could tell you, I mean, I always joke about this in my writing. You could probably do Amazon Go as a very thoughtful experiment for almost any retailer for probably the costs of three to five executive bonuses. Mm. And when you put it in that frame of mind, that's actually pretty easy to do innovation in that regard. <laughs> Until you've identified those those executives that are not going to get their bonus. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You say, sorry, you have to give exactly. it back, I'm afraid. We're going to do an Amazon Go store. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> or you don't find it that way. But but the symbolism is still the same. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? Don't actually try and take off the CEO's bonus. Yeah, <laughs> the that, that probably won't work. That approach won't work. But yeah. But no, but yeah, no, but I mean that's I think that's fundamentally it, right? You know, I mean, you know, at a large, you know, multi-billion dollar retailer, you can do some pretty good innovation work for a really low cost when you start putting things in perspective. Yeah. And yeah, having that startup mentality as well, I guess, is really important because actually the lower the cost forces you to think innovatively, it forces you to think differently, and it actually reduces the risk for the company. So you maybe get a few extra miles in your uh, in your ideas and what you want to test and try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even from my own experience at Target, I think running running innovation work there, I would actually tell you I probably had you know almost too much money to work with over time. Mm. Like that you had, it was better to you know, constrain yourselves and to keep yourself scrappy. Because the other part that comes in there that we didn't talk about is you also get the difficulty of just trying to strive for perfection, which is with startups. I mean, everyone has an MVP mentality of just how much do we test and learn our way into the right answer. And that's important within concept work and R&D work too. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a whole nother podcast if you'd uh, like to come back onto the show and talk about that at some stage, Chris. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great, man. This has been a blast. Cool. Well, I've really enjoyed having you on on the show. It's been a great conversation. We've gone in quite a few different angles, but um, thank you very much for for sharing all of your experience and your ideas. How can people get in touch or find out more, Chris? Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do if you liked our content or like what we talked about today, you subscribe to our blog. It's uh, www.omnitalk.blog. Uh, and then also hit me up on LinkedIn. Always love connecting with new people, getting into great discussions online through that platform. Uh, you can find me easily there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Omnitalk. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. It was an absolute wonderful experience. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love to do it again. Super. Well, let's make that happen. Sounds good. Cheers, Chris. Thanks, Ollie. So that was my conversation there with Chris Walton. I thought it was a fantastic conversation with loads of golden nuggets. In particular, I thought his framework was really great. What is the point of your store of the future? What are you trying to learn and understand from it? Think about those three groups that Chris identified. Is it all about incremental innovation? Is it about new business models? Or is it the concept car of your retail brand? All the funky new ideas and really pushing the boat out. Why are you doing a store of the future? Which bucket does it sit in? Don't try and do all three. It's just going to be very, very confusing. So be clear and make sure then it's funded and obviously you can surge ahead. Do head over to the show notes page at obandco.uk slash 96, where you can find all of Chris's contact details if you want to reach out or if you want to go over to his OmniTalk blog or connect on LinkedIn. 
And hey, if we're not connected on LinkedIn as well, then yeah, do reach out, say hi. Let me know that you are listening to the show. It's always great to engage and hear your thoughts and reflections from the different episodes. So that's all at the show notes, obandco.uk slash 96. And hey, why not sign up for my retail transformation briefings as well, which is a weekly email newsletter that highlights all of the big headlines that are happening in the world of retail transformation to keep you up to speed. So thanks for tuning in. Do make sure you hit subscribe for the next episode. And whilst you're waiting for that, why don't you scroll back through the archives? You might want to check out episode 81, which was looking at customer obsession and actually what it really means to be customer obsessed. So scroll back a little and have a little listen to that one. That's episode 81. And I'll look forward to joining you on the next episode very soon. Bye then. 